welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Nicole Phillips, an intern for the Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Zoe Kwan. Zoe completed her MD at UCSF and went on to finish her residency training in internal medicine at Stanford Hospital and clinics prior to returning to UCSF. Once upon returning to UCSF for her endocrinology and diabetes fellowship, her research focuses in endocrine immune-related adverse events such as type 1 diabetes following cancer immunotherapy. Thank you so much, Zoe, for being a part of our podcast today. It's such a pleasure to have you and to be able to interview you, and I know we're going to learn a lot, so I can't wait. Thank you so much for um, the opportunity to share the research I've been working on. I'm very much looking forward to it. Great. Um, so just first off, wanted to start off, how did you get interested in type 1 diabetes research? Um, so this was actually a little bit of a funny story, I guess, or a serendipitous story. Um, I started my fellowship, endocrine fellowship at UCSF, thinking that I would um, do re- research and take care of patients um, with a focus in women's health. And then one of my first consults as I got started was a patient who had developed um, this form of diabetes that seemed really to be consistent with type 1 diabetes after starting um, cancer immunotherapy. And this got me really excited and completely changed the trajectory of what I thought my career would look like. Um, I started talking to Jeff Bluestone and Mark Anderson, who were um, immunology researchers in the Diabetes Center at UCSF. And so after my first year of fellowship, where I happened to see a few more of these patients, um, I joined their labs and we've been working on building a cohort of these patients and really trying to understand um, this form of autoimmune diabetes and how well it overlaps with type 1 diabetes, what the differences are through a variety of different approaches. Mm -hmm. During your time studying type 1 diabetes, what techniques have you found that are um, in the lab that are easiest and what techniques are most challenging for your lab? Um, So I came into this with a background in epidemiology and um, public health and a lot less experience in the wet lab. So that has really been a learning experience for me. I'm very comfortable kind of living in the data um, statistics world and then so I've had to do a lot more learning around the technologies we use in the lab. Um, But it's been really exciting work and um, a, a nice opportunity to grow uh, my my knowledge base. Mm-hmm. So coming from epidemiology, how have like do you have any advice for those that may um, may be coming from like the same background as you? Yeah, I think um, you know one of the important things I've found is to really not forget kind of that training and those principles as I start to learn more of the translational methods because these things still come up. So like sample size and power to understand something's really important um, when we're working in the lab. And then a lot of the same statistical principles are still at play. I've spent a long time like reading different immunology kind of textbooks and articles um, and I had the opportunity when I got started to go to one of the focus courses um, 
in immunology, which was super helpful. It's funny, in, in med school, we learned some immunology, but not nearly as much as you need from a basic science perspective. So I've had a crash course over the last couple of years. Um, so you talked a little bit about your current work. Um, do you have any hypothesis about um, your findings? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think our, our first question really was how similar is checkpoint inhibitor induced diabetes to type 1 diabetes? And we've found a lot of similarities. Um, patients are very insulin dependent. You know, the, the treatment is basically very similar to type 1 diabetes and um, probably a pretty progressed type 1 diabetes. The loss of insulin is pretty acute. Um, there seems to be some shared genetic risk between the two, although it might not perfectly overlap. Um, one of the mo more interesting findings, I think, has been that the autoantibodies that we typically see in type 1 diabetes are positive only about half of the time. So that's kind of the sticking point that's making us feel like it really could be a, a different etiology or slightly different mechanism of disease onset. Um, it's a pretty exciting opportunity because the, um, you know, TrialNet has spent a long time trying to catch patients developing diabetes because that will give us a better sense of what's happening um, in the natural history of the disease. And with these patients, they're really closely monitored because they're coming in for their cancer therapies. Um, and so we're really able to look at their blood sugars every two weeks and catch them really quickly at the time of onset. And um, I think that's going to be a really important aspect in terms of understanding the development of type 1 diabetes and what certain triggers might be. Mm -hmm. And type 1 diabetes, the field is so interdisciplinary that do you find which um, fields do you find most valuable to your work right now? Yeah. Um, well, I went into medicine, I think, inspired to do collaborative work. I knew that I wanted to do research, um, and I really liked the idea of doing an MD um, approach to it because I, I thought it was important to keep kind of the patient story as the center of the research question. And so I think the collaboration with patients has always been kind of what I wanted to have as part of my career. But then as a over the course of actually getting into research and um, and then growing this particular in this particular field, it's definitely been learning from the immunologists. Um, and I think I bring more of the clinical perspective and to the table, and they um, are bringing this background that I'm starting to learn from, but have less of a less of an understanding of. So you work a lot with patients. Um, do you think? During this time of COVID, how has that affected your work and like your recent research right now? Yeah, um, it definitely, you know, we have put some some aspects of the project on pause. We haven't been collecting um, new samples um, as readily as we have um, before COVID, but it's it, we're starting to pick things up. I think the big thing that we're trying to focus on is making sure that we don't do anything that will increase a patient's risk. So if we're collecting samples, we're coupling it with the time of that they're coming in for a treat a different treatment. Um, and then, you know, all of our consenting process has moved to Zoom um, and online forms because the 
they're, you know, we're not giving therapies. We're just trying to help understand what's happening to the patient. So it would be the last thing that we would want to have, um, have them, you know, get, have a higher risk because of working with us. But from a clinical perspective, it's been kind of amazing to see how much we really can have done over, um, over Zoom for our appointments. Most of my patients, um, all of my patients really besides one with checkpoint inhibitor diabetes um, have CGMs. And so it really has not made it very difficult to transition care. Like I you know, we pull up the CGM together. In some ways, I think it helps with the education because I share my screen and I show them exactly what I'm looking at. Um, and it's given me more flexibility in terms of, um, oh, you're having like, you're ha having a really hard week, like let's meet on Friday, even though my clinics are usually on Monday. So in some ways, I think the care that we're providing is actually better for, for the patients. Mm -hmm. um, so my next question is about can you hypothesize um, which discipline currently studying type 1 diabetes will find a cure? And do you think that there will be more than just one that will find a cure? Um, yeah. Um, I have a patient who every time we, we see each other asks me when he can get his stem cells implanted. Um, so, you know, I think that that is something that he's very excited about and hopefully would be a long-term thing. But um, I think right now I feel most inspired really by the recent results with the tepluzumab study. And I think that if we can identify really an earlier onset of the beta cell autoimmunity, we can use Im immunomodulatory therapies um, earlier and they'll be more effective at preserving the beta cell mass that's left. Um, and I, I think about that a lot with my checkpoint inhibitor patients because we really do we really are able to track them over time. Mm -hmm. um, but the immunomodulation that we can use in them is obviously different than in a patient without cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so you talk a little bit about um, communication. Um, and so how have you been able to network with others in this field space? And how important do you think it is for your work right now to communicate with others? Yeah, um, I think it's key. I mean, there's there's one postdoc that I work with um, in the Bluestone Lab, and we are, you know, we're incredibly close collaboration with each other. We talk on a daily basis about our projects. Um, I think she's basically essential to the work that we're that I'm doing, um, and can't imagine having to do it without her. But aside from from her, we we both work within this. UCSF Diabetes Center, and then for, for myself, like within the endocrine division, having recently finished fellowship there, um, I definitely have a network of people that are great in terms of just like a morale boost when you need one, but also just the technical expertise. How do I get something done? You know, to speak to the COVID point, a lot of our kind of um, like school-wide systems for research had shut down during a period for everything besides COVID research and they're just starting to get set up again. And so we're, we're working together to try to figure out the best way for us to safely start enrolling patients in studies again. Um, it's, it's really important to have these relationships and to maintain them over this time period where we're not seeing each other every day. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned, so you have a lot of network within UCSF. Do you think 
Um, have you been able to reach out to other researchers like across the world globally as well? Yeah, well, I um, definitely across the U.S. have met with a few different endocrinologists that are especially interested in this field. And I'm working with um, some people in Nebraska and in Boston on developing workflows for hyperglycemia in um, oncology patients. And then we have a, we also have a collaboration going with the Melanoma Institute of Australia. Um, so I think, especially when studying a rare disease like this, it is really important for us to try to tap into, you know, outside of UCSF. Um, yeah. Um, do you have any current papers that you're reading right now that have helped your research or ones in the past that have? Yeah. Um, so I've definitely been a little bit interested in the everything that's coming out with COVID, but um, <laughs> focusing more on my research. Um, the I've been working a lot with Cytoff and with single cell data right now. And so I've been reading a lot um, about different approaches to doing those analyses. There's um, some great papers out of the Spitzer lab here at UCSF that I've been um, focusing on. And then most recently, um, a cell paper um, looking at human brain cancers and single cell mapping of the um, tumor specific leukocytes. So mm -hmm that's been on my reading list lately. Yeah. Have any of them been important to you in terms of methods um, for your research? Yeah, there's um, one of the papers from through Matt Spitzer's lab from a couple, two, I can't remember now if it's 2018 or 2019, but it's a great layout of how CYTOF is done and what the panels to use and the different approaches to the analysis. And, um, you know, as I as I've been trying to meld my bioinformatics from just straight up um, clinical research into the bioinformatics of immunology, it's been like an essential um, guide to getting through that. And then, you know, I think going back to different aspects of the project, one of the other things we've been looking at is the genetic predispositions. And so we've been looking, using a lot of papers um, by Janelle Noble, on HLA types and type 1 diabetes, and then um, using the type 1 diabetes polygenic risk score that was developed at Exeter um, to try to understand how the genetics of, um, of checkpoint inhibitor diabetes overlaps or doesn't overlap with type 1 diabetes. So I think the, those papers have also definitely been kind of like a recipe book that I've followed for aspects of the project. Mm -hmm. That's great. After all this time studying type 1 diabetes, do you think you want to continue studying type 1 diabetes? Why or why not? And then what are some challenges to studying type 1 diabetes right now? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, even though I found my way here in kind of a, a surprising manner, I guess, um, it's definitely something that I've continued to be inspired to study. As I see patients with type 1, it's it's really a challenging disease to live with. Um, and that's made me really inspired to try to, I think, help patients, you know, in an ideal world, I guess we can figure out how to prevent it, but um, also help patients as they live with the disease. Um, it's something that I, I think that we, we really want to enable patients to be able to live their life without thinking about what their blood sugars are and 
um, that is definitely a challenge for for most of the people that I see and that's something that inspires me on a daily basis mm-hmm. yeah my younger brother has type 1 diabetes so seeing him struggle with that on daily basis is it's definitely really tough so yeah I mean I think of it and explain it to my patients as like this is another full-time job you're taking on like you're going to be thinking about this a lot and particularly with the cancer patients, they have other treatments. They sometimes are on steroids for a couple days each week and then the rest of the day not on steroids. And um, some of them have done really well with their cancers and we're just focused on the diabetes. And for others, I'm like, this is, you know, we're going to keep your blood sugar in a safe range, but let's, let's let you enjoy life because, you know, this, you're not, not going to be here for too much longer. And I don't want you worrying about whether your blood sugar is 120 or 180, like eat your ice cream and I'll help you stay (laughs) safe. Um, Yeah. It's been so great. So those are all the questions that I have. I don't, if you have anything that you want to just touch on that maybe I didn't ask about, or if you have any I don't think so. Advising tips. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. To... yeah, I guess my advice is, um, I think what has been really exciting over the last few years is trying to really build these collaborations and do science that crosses different disciplines. I think that that is a really important thing um, that we bring to the table. Uh, like each person, you know, as the MD that I that I am and then my very close colleague that's the PhD, like working together has really made both of our um, projects and our research and science so much stronger than it would be without each other. And I think that's something that's really important um, to focus on is like, what can you bring and who can you work with to help fill your holes? Mm -hmm. That's great. So thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And so I learned a lot and I'm just very grateful that you had the time to speak with me. Um, so thanks again. Thank you.